Good morning, everyone. Wow, wasn't the presence of God heavy here this morning? Amazing, amazing time in his presence. Um, hopefully, uh, during the break, you noticed this, these messages come up, so you've had a chance to think about the answer to the first question, and uh, I'll reveal the answer in due course. And, uh, and also, there are some post-it notes going around. Um, so if you haven't got a post-it note yet, then just stick your hand up and someone can throw the spare pile of post-its. So there's a few. If we can have the spares, that's it. Get around here, some across the front. That would be great because we're going to be using them in a bit. Exciting. OK. Um, and uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, then it would be great if you could turn to the book of Ephesians. And we're going to be reading a big chunk of chapter one. So we're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians this morning. Rob started us off so well last week with the idea that we are chosen um, and he unpacked that for us, the fact that we're chosen in love and, and so on. And, uh, and we're going to continue from where he left off last week. So I'm going to read from verses three through to 14. The words will appear on the screen as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on earth. In him also, just in case that wasn't enough, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Wow, that is awesome. That is one sentence when Paul wrote it. One sentence in the Greek. We, fortunately for my breath, split it into a number of different sentences. But this is an overflow of the praise to our magnificent God. I think we need to pray. Holy, holy Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for this description of your blessings to us, of everything that you have done for us. 
And the fact that we as your children get to walk in and inherit this. Oh, we are truly astounded. We have just spent time in your presence, magnifying you as the one who holds the kingdom and the power and the glory and everything belongs to you. And so as we turn to your word now, would you open it to us? Would you open the eyes of our heart by your Holy Spirit? Would you speak to us? Would you transform us? May we encounter you afresh this morning. Amen. So our theme today is being holy and blameless. So it's out of verse four, really. So I know I read that whole sentence, uh, but we're just going to look at a small section of it. So it says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Verse four. And maybe up to this point, you've been having a great morning. And when I said that the sermon is about being holy and blameless, your hearts just sank a little bit. Maybe for those of you, and I know there are people in the room who maybe aren't used to being around the church on a Sunday morning. And maybe the fact that that's the title of the sermon just confirms your worst fears about Christians. Actually, it's all about being holier than thou. Or superior or judgmental, maybe. All about the rules and regulations and the do's and don'ts. Well, if you're thinking that, that is great. Absolutely great, because today we're going to demolish some of those lies, because that is not true. And when we start to think about holiness, it's too easy to start with us. Actually, it doesn't start with us. It starts with God. And so we're going to spend some time looking at the amazing holiness of God. And after we've dwelt on that for a bit, we're going to think about what our response might be to that. But holiness has no meaning, you see, outside of that reference point of God. So that's where we're going to start this morning. So let's start by looking at his character. And earlier I put up that question about what's the adjective used to describe God most in the Old Testament. Well, it's the word holy. That is, how many of you got that right? Uh, some, yeah, some smug faces around the room. Well done. Well done. But do you know how much it's used? The, the word, thank you, Rob. The, the word holy is used to preface God's name more than all of the other descriptions in the Old Testament added together. Wow. So how many times do you think you've read the phrase, the Holy One of Israel, for example? And how often has it really struck home? Just like, oh yeah, that's what they call God, move on. The real story. No, this is the real story. How often have we read or sung those lines from Isaiah's famous vision in the temple? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, and it just trips off our tongues. The Holy One of Israel, our God is holy. That's who we're talking about here. And that's all very well, but what does it actually mean 
for God to be holy. You see, elsewhere in scripture, God's described as things like he's like a shepherd. Or he's a king. Or he's a refuge. Or a rock. Or a father. And I feel like I've got a reasonable handle on some of those images that I can kind of relate to. When he's described as holy, what does that mean? What does that look like? It feels a little bit abstract, and yet it crops up all of the time. It reminds me of um, pie. You know pie? This pie. It'll come on the screen now. Not like eat your pie, but, but this pie. Some of you are now worried that you've got a post-it note and we're going to be asked a question about pie. Don't worry. Don't worry. Pie. I mean, pie, so it's kind of around about three, 3.14. Impressive. That deserves a round of applause. I once taught a student who could recite pie to 500 decimal places. Yeah, he was a really interesting chap. <laughs> no, I mean that. That wasn't sarcastic. And maybe those of us who went to school a bit longer ago, it was kind of 22 over 7. Yeah, 22 sevenths, 3.14. Anyway, and it crops up in mathematics all the time. So you might be vaguely recalling area of a circle. Pi multiplied by the radius squared. Or the distance around the edge of your circle is two lots of the radius multiplied by pi. And there's an approximation to it in 1 Kings as well, if you want to dig that out. Yeah, see? It is in the Bible. Um, but, and so we kind of know about it. We've got a feel for it. But no one in this room can place it on a number line. None of you can. Because it's... Not quite this, or even as far as Beth quoted, because it just continues and continues and continues. So you can never exactly pinpoint it. We can only do approximations to it. And it crops up all over the place. And if you've studied maths beyond GCSE, well, you've had a wonderful life. And (laughs) pi crops up all over the place. And yet, You can't kind of quite grasp a hold of it. And maybe that's a small indication of the holiness of God. That it kind of crops up all over the place, and yet we can't quite pin it down. Can't quite nail it. It means he's set apart. means that he's perfect. That he's flawless. There's no blemish in him. No shadow, no blip, no error, no deficit. He is absolute perfection. Derek Tidball writes this, and this will appear on your screens now, that God's holiness has to do with God's altogether different nature. His transcendent separateness, his exalted majesty, his awesome power, his absolute purity, his immeasurable brightness, his unfathomable glory, and also his redeeming salvation. It is shorthand for the excellence of his perfection. 
That's the best definition I've found of the holiness of God. And it is awesome. God being holy is a kind of summary for his essential character. Everything he does and everything he is, is holy. And we see it throughout scripture and we could now spend the rest of our time together just looking up references to his holiness and enjoying that. But I'm going to leave that for homework for you. And I'm going to look at one, Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. Love that. It's his name, not just his nature, his character, it's his name. Whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't that amazing? That God in his awesome perfection chooses to revive the heart of the lowly and contrite. And so when we meditate on his holiness, we are meditating on the very nature of God and that will lead us to worship. And we're going to come back to this later on. But holiness isn't just about who God is. But it's about the, the fact that he has a plan for us. Back to verse 4 of Ephesians 1. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So he chose us, as we heard last week, in love, in order that we would be holy and blameless. Just get that. Holiness, the perfect summary of all that God is, is the plan for you and for me in him. Holiness, we're chosen for this perfect purpose. This is his big plan. This is the plan of God. Not an afterthought, but mapped out from the very foundations of the world and even before that. Amazes me, anyway. And this phrase, holy and blameless, does appear together a few times in Scripture. So if you flick through to Ephesians 5.27, it says that he, Jesus, might present to himself the church in all her glory, that's us, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Or a little bit later on when he's writing to the Colossians in chapter 122. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This holy and blameless thing is linked to how we're going to be presented before him. It's about being in his presence. It's about readying ourselves for his presence. And Jude, verse 24, Jude, poor Jude, overlooked so often. I'll quote from him now. 
Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That's what he's about. That's what he's doing. That's his grand plan. That's the trajectory of this choosing. We're chosen in eternity past before anything comes into being. We're chosen then to live holy and blameless before him in order that we will be presented holy and blameless before him for the rest of eternity. That is a big plan. And that's his plan for you and his plan for me. But what does it actually mean to be holy and blameless day to day? What does it mean? Well, being holy refers to an inner purity. As we said earlier, it's looking like how God looks. It's what purity is. It's a positive thing. We look like him. One writer describes holiness as nothing less than conformity to the character of God. Nothing less than conformity to the character of God. And Tidball, who we quoted earlier, says that holiness is becoming increasingly God-centered, Christ-like and spirit-empowered. God-centered, Christ-like, spirit-empowered. Holiness means looking like the holy God that you love and loves us. Being holy. The other word is blameless. Well, if holiness refers to an inner purity, blameless refers to an outer purity, an outward focused purity. It does have a bit of a negative emphasis. If holiness is kind of positive in taking on all that God is, blameless in a sense is negative because it's an absence of wrongdoing, wrong things. The absence of impurity. It means that there is no blame attached to us anymore. It means that we're faultless. That's his plan for us. His plan for us, chosen that we would be holy and blameless. I'll just mention this briefly. There's a really great picture in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement. It's when the sins of Israel are dealt with once a year. And the high priest gets two goats. And the one of them he takes into the holy place. Only the high priest is allowed in there and only once a year. And he, he kills the goat. It's a sign of the sacrifice that's required, the blood that's shed for sin to be dealt with. It's about holiness. The fact that the high priest gets to walk out of there means that God is satisfied that his people have been declared holy. He had a rope round his leg in case he didn't make it out. Okay? They drag him out afterwards. So that's the first goat. The second goat is left on its own wondering what's going to happen. The high priest comes out confesses the sin of the people over it, then it's taken out into the wilderness and let go. What that means is that not only is the sin dealt with through sacrifice, but it's also removed entirely from the people. And it never comes back. That's blameless. Holy because of the blood of Jesus. Blameless because the sin is gone. No accusation can be leveled anymore. It's gone. Gone forever. Holy and blameless. 
holy in the presence of God, blameless, nothing sticks to us. That's his plan for us. Chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. But how can that even happen? I mean, how? How? How can we get the holiness of God in us? There's kind of a ridiculous thought. We can't even explain it unless we're Derek Tidball. Um, and even then it falls short. So how can that be ours? Well, it's because of his grace. It's because of his grace. Just go back to verse four. Let's read it carefully. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. The fact that Paul writes to these Christians and says that they're chosen to be holy and blameless, chosen that they would be holy and blameless, means that previously they were not holy and blameless. And anyway, since the choosing of them was chosen before the very foundation of the world, before creation, before they'd done anything to merit any favour at all, that's grace. That's grace. It's grace because there is nothing within them to say that you're chosen because you are holy and blameless. You're chosen because you're not holy and blameless to be holy and blameless. It's grace. He chose us to be something we were not and could never be under our own steam. Let me illustrate it again. Leviticus. Again, wonderful, overlooked book of scripture. In summary, Leviticus, one word, holy. Okay, so that'll give you a key for getting into it. So Leviticus 11. Verse 44 says this. For I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. (coughs) We love this kind of stuff. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. So there's a call to holiness based on the fact that God is holy. Let's read verse 45. For I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Hang on. So this call to be holy comes after he's rescued his people. The rescue of the people of Israel was they were in Egypt, in slavery. God brings them out miraculously, brings them through the Red Sea into their inheritance eventually. The call for them to be holy was made after the rescue had happened. That's grace. The rescue happened first. I tell you what, God would have saved himself an awful lot of hassle if he'd insisted that the people were holy and blameless before he rescued them. Because they'd still be in Egypt. And they created a lot of hassle for him afterwards, once he'd rescued them. But the call to holiness comes after he's done all the hard work. After he's done the rescue, he says, okay, I rescued you. Now be holy 
because I am holy. And that's the essence of the gospel. That's the good news. God chooses a people who don't deserve to be chosen, who can do nothing in and of themselves to make them worthy to be chosen. And he says, be like me because of the blood of Jesus. There is forgiveness in the cross. You can be like me because I've done the rescue already. Look around you. Other people, go on, do it. You, they won't bite. Obviously, some people look funny. Um, <laughs> all of those people who you looked at, every single one of them, do not deserve anything from God based on their own merit. And yet, most of those people who you looked at know the awesome reality that despite their failings, God has chosen them. That's his grace. That's his grace. And so holiness is not a thing about what we do in the first place. It's about who he is and how he shows his grace to us. So how then does it even work that we can become holy and blameless? Well, it only makes sense when we understand what our position is. Holy, being holy and blameless flows out of our position of where we live, where we dwell, where we reside. And I mean that spiritually. Everyone knows Shirley's the best place to live, but this isn't talking about that. This is talking about where we are spiritually. And Paul bangs on about this again and again and again. So verse 3, he says that we get all these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. That's where the blessings are. They're in Christ. And then in verse 4, he chose us where? In him. And then we're chosen to be in him, to be before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless. Where? Before him. It's all about him. And you read through the passage and it says in him, in him, in Christ, etc., etc., again and again and again. This is where Paul lives. And this is where he says we need to live. We need to dwell in him. We are in Christ. And being in his presence leads to holiness. It has an effect on us. And I think there's two things that need to be said about this. The first is that we're allowed into his presence. And the second is that once we're in his presence, we need to stay in his presence. So have you all got a post-it? You're wondering when these will come up, don't you? I suppose I should do this as well. This is really random, and I apologize for, well, to all of you, really, but especially if you're here for the first time. I'd like you to stick this to your forehead. (laughs) (laughs) 
How not to build your church. (laughs) Great. So, here we go. Bear with me. Bear with me. And this is only because of budgetary constraints, as will become clear in a minute. So, if you read Exodus 28, it describes the high priest and what they wear. And one thing they wear is a turban. And on the front, I can provide turban. Um, on, the, on the front of the turban is a gold plate poster. Gold plate, which is attached to their forehead. And on, the, on that is engraved, holy to the Lord. And that means that when the high priest goes into the presence of God, there written over him is holy to the Lord. It's a designation. It's a statement of fact as to his status before God. And it meant that he could go into the holy of holies. The fact that he'd been accepted into the presence of God. And the Bible calls this justification. A declaration, a legal declaration that we stand righteous before God. That written over us is holy to the Lord. That we've been put right with him and we're allowed into his presence. And we exchange through his life and death guilty stains for his righteousness. We sang that earlier. It basically means you can wear your post-it all the time. (laughs) Alternatively, if you're feeling uncomfortable, you can take it off now. So that's how we're allowed in. But we've got to stay in. Something happened in our house last night. No, no, I've got you intrigued. This happened. There should be a picture. There we go. So, two coins. I've got them here. They were both, at eight o'clock last night, they were both, the colour of the one on the right-hand side. This morning, one of them had changed colour. And that was because I put it in this cleaning fluid overnight. (laughs) Other cleaning fluids are available. And soaking that coin in the presence of that Coke... For a few hours, led to some of the impurities going away. Some of the dirt being taken off. Just think what it's doing to your tummy. And sometimes we get tarnished by sin. Kind of stuff sticks to us, clings to us. But being in his presence helps to clean us up. The Bible calls this sanctification. The the idea of staying right and getting right with God, of being cleaned up as we go on in our walks with him, of looking increasingly like him, moving into an ever greater measure of freedom and wholeness. And it happens because of where we're located. It happens because we are in Christ. 
And dwelling in his presence means that we look more like the coin on the right right hand side. I think I said right and left wrong before, didn't I? Because I've behind me. So not only are we allowed to come into his presence because we're declared righteous, we're allowed to stay in his presence, live in his presence, and that will have the effect of us looking increasingly like him. Being holy means that we can come in. Being blameless means that nothing can stick to us. But you might have noted that this is a bit of a circular argument. So you're only allowed into his presence if you're holy. Because he's holy. But then he's the one who makes you holy so you can come into his presence. That's all fine. That's basically what the Bible says. Okay, so it's all right. That we're allowed in because he's declared us holy and we get to be looking increasingly like him as we spend time in his presence. And the reason is the action is all on God's side. It's about his performance on the cross. It's the fact that he deals with our sin once and for all. And so for us, we just need to enjoy being in Christ. We are declared righteous. We are blame free. Sin is dealt with because he took it on himself when he died on the cross and as a result offers us forgiveness. So holiness then, it's the the character of God. It's rooted in who he is. It's his plan for us, which it comes about all because of grace, and we just live in the good of it by being in Christ. But it's also our response. We can't just be passive in this. We can't just say, oh, that's really good. So that basically happens to me. No, there's a response from us. And remember, Paul's not introducing any new material here. That command, be holy because I am holy, that's Leviticus, that's book three of the Bible. So all the way from there, right through scripture, you know, it's repeated. And so there's a call on us to imitate God. To be holy just as he is holy. Or, in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, it says, be perfect as I am perfect. And so holiness isn't just about what happens to us. It's also our response to him, a response to his grace. Obedience is our response to his love. And that can be costly. But there is a cost. Let me tell you about the context for this letter to Ephesians, because that might help us understand a bit about this. So in Acts chapter 19, Paul, this incredible guy who travels all around the the known world, really, preaching the gospel, planting churches, shows up at Ephesus. And there he meets some people who um, they haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. So he deals with that by praying for them and inviting the Holy Spirit to come, which he does. 
because that's what he does when we ask. More of that in a few weeks' time. Um, and then he spends three months teaching in the synagogue. That kind of goes a little bit wrong because the authorities aren't particularly happy with what's happening. And so he then goes and he debates, argues, lectures, teaches for two years in the hall of Tyrannus. Yes, as in the dinosaur, but he wasn't around. And a load of miracles happen, like crazy stuff. So handkerchiefs that Paul's touched are then taken and laid on the sick people and they get better. I mean, it's cool. It was cool. Um, And then there's some other, there's a strange little account about this guy called Sceva, which you can read about in your own time. Um, And then we read this. So verse 17 of Acts 19. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver or drachmas. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was a day's wage. So on UK national minimum wage as of today, on a normal working day, on the basis of that, that being a drachma, 50,000 drachmas comes to 2.9 million pounds. That's the people who got converted in Ephesus and brought their magic books and burnt it. That's the value of that. Nearly three million pounds worth of books and paraphernalia for magic. That's what it means to be holy. That is the cost of holiness for these people. This isn't just something that they wander into because Jesus has saved me. This has cost them. Paul's writing to a group of people here who've decided that the cost of being holy and blameless, who of the cost of walking into their uh, calling, their choosing in God, is worth a lot of money. Worth it. Worth paying it. Ruthless in their pursuit of being holy and blameless. And that's called repentance. Where you put aside all the things that you used to do that aren't right before God. You say, actually, not having any of that. I'm going this way now. And to make sure I don't go back to it, I'm ditching it all, burning it, getting rid of it. And there will be a cost for each of us. Might not necessarily be financial. It might be. When I was a teenager, one of the guys I knew got saved and ditched a load of their dubious videos. Videos. Miss them, don't you? He got rid of them because they were dodgy. They weren't good. He'd saved up his pocket money, his paper round money. Got rid of it. There was a cost. May cost us relationships. People think you're a bit odd. Don't really get it. May cost you credibility in the eyes of some people. 
that certainly will cost you different behaviours. Behaviours that are wrong will have to go. No more gossip. Greed. Gluttony. No more adultery. No more murder. They're all not part of being holy and blameless. It's got to go. It's got to go. There is a cost to this. There is a cost to the gospel. But it's worth it. And it's worth it because there are rewards to the gospel as well. And freedom is one of them. I mean, wouldn't you, if you just consider your life and all those things which kind of entangle you, you know, those sinful things, I've got them in my life as well. Things that just kind of grip a hold of you and try and pull you back and, you you know, leave you feeling dirty. Whether it be envy or insecurity or whatever, lust. Wouldn't it be great to know that you can live without that pollution in your life. Knowing that you can be dealt with it, it's gone. What a call to holiness can be about. Not because of your own efforts, but because you've got a post-it on your head saying, holy to the Lord, and he's dealt with all the sin. We're now in Christ. Sin is dealt with. It's removed, its power is defeated. <laughs> and there's no bragging rights with this. Not, oh, you've achieved hope. No, no, this is his work by his spirit in us. It's all about his grace, all about what God has done. We're chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Just destroys legalism destroys self-righteousness because it's all about him and we respond in faith to that. And so I think this morning there's a clear invitation. There's a clear invitation to each and every one of us. If you don't know Jesus as your saviour, as the one who has dealt with your sin on the cross, who invites you into a relationship with him as your heavenly father, and all the freedom that that brings, then you can know that this morning. Yes, you need to repent. Yes, you need to confess all those things that you've done that are wrong and then walk into freedom. But maybe you know all that already. But you know that actually there's some stuff that's just clinging on. You're like that 2P coin and you just need a big soak again in the presence of God, to burn off the rubbish. A recommitment, if you like. Well, there's a call to respond to his grace. So the band are going to come back now, and uh, there's going to be a little bit of shuffling around as we sort things, but I'd just like us to stand before him. And we exchange through his life and death guilty stains for his righteousness. So we're going to close with this song. 
Our children are going to be needed to be collected in a few minutes. And coffee will be served. But I want to create some space for us to respond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth in the gospel. We thank you that on offer for us, because of what Jesus did on the cross, in satisfying all that stood against us, satisfying your wrath, that we can come into freedom and know you as our Heavenly Father. We thank you for that. We thank you that you chose us before the very foundations of the world, before we did anything that would gain us any credit, and you called us to be holy and blameless before you. And so, Father, I pray for each of us here that we will walk into a greater degree of freedom in you.